help is in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, everybody, to our School of Christi, the School of Christ, here at the Oratory. And welcome to all those who are online, uh, viewing with us here tonight. Uh, we're continuing our study of Romano Guardini's book, Meditations Before Mass. And um, we've been at it for a good two years. Uh, it's just a little book of meditations, but they're extremely rich. And if you remember, he's taken us through every element of the celebration of the Mass itself, and in particular, our participation in the liturgy. How is it that we enter into it more fully? Everything from the attitudes that we bring to the Mass itself, how we prepare ourselves, uh, to the various elements of the Mass. We've looked at the Liturgy of the Word, and we've gone through the Liturgy of the Eucharist itself. And now he's in the final section of the book, and looking at some of the fundamental attitudes that uh, we are to bring, but uh, also to foster in our lives in order that we might enter into the mystery uh, of the Mass itself. And it's in a surprising way, this meditation above all the ones that we've looked at over these two years seems to bring everything together from all of the groups uh, that I've been doing with the Fathers and uh, with St. Theophan. Everything seems to coalesce in tonight's group. And I think the reason for that is he's speaking to us about how uh, we experience the revelation of God in our lives and how, in a sense, that turns the way that we think upside down, that we typically think of ourselves making use of our intellect, our reason to reach out and grasp something. We study it in order to understand the various facets of it. Whereas with revelation, it is as if we are grasped by something that is greater than ourselves we're taking hold of by a truth that is, is greater than ourselves. And there is a kind of docility that we have to have, but more important, we have to have the gift of faith, that we allow God to draw us along through this gift, to comprehend in uh, a prayerful kind of way, to comprehend a truth that is greater than anything that we could understand within this world. We're being drawn into a kind of self-emptying love that none of us can understand because it is beyond something human, it's divine. And so we cannot approach the liturgy in any other attitude than that of humility. We understand that we're entering into something that's greater than ourselves and that God has to reveal himself to us. And if you remember in some of the groups we've talked about the word revelation itself. It comes from the, the, the root re velare, to draw back, to pull back the veil. And that this is what God is doing with us. Certainly in his son coming in our, into our midst, taking on our human flesh through the incarnation. But it's what we experience every time we enter into the Holy Eucharist. God drawing back the veil for us to comprehend the depth of the truth of his self-emptying love and what that means not only to receive that gift but then what we are to become ourselves in and through it that by our entering into communion with our lord in this way receiving him fully body blood soul and divinity then we are now called to, to make that same self-offering to others in our life and again this is something that we can only understand in love and in and through our faith uh, and our uh, position, I think, when or our ex expression when we encounter the Eucharist should be more like Peter, when our Lord begins to talk about uh, himself as the bread of life and the discourse in John, uh, to where are we to go, Lord? 
that it's not because Peter comprehended it with his intellect. In fact, most of the disciples did not, and a great uh, majority of them left his company at that point or murmured in protest. The Jews that were also there listening to him speak of himself in this way walked away in a kind of disgust, feeling that this was blasphemy. And even those closest to him uh, had to struggle to accept this truth that Jesus was revealing of himself uh, to them, and that they would only understand gradually as he would draw them in to the mystery more fully, in particular through his passion and death and resurrection, that ultimately they would only come to see and understand this as he took them through the mystery of the self-emptying love itself, and then revealed the joy of it through the resurrection. He had given them the gift of the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday, but they could not obviously wrap their minds around what that ultimately would mean in terms of God offering himself in this radical way and pouring himself out for us in order that we might have life. And so this will be the topic of our discussion tonight. Bordini entitles it Christ Offering of Self. And uh, this is exactly what he's looking at, but I think especially he focuses in uh, on what this revelation is like to experience. A new birth, he describes it as, is uh, sort of the greatest way of understanding it. Something new comes into existence for us in terms of our understanding, uh, in terms of our experience of God. And that's a fundamentally humbling uh, experience to have. We have to let go of everything that we have that holds us up. We're very comfortable with these parameters that we have in terms of our understanding of reality, that we've grown and come to understand things symbolically. We develop the gift of speech. We understand the world around us, reality around us in a certain way. But all of a sudden with Christ and the revelation of himself as the bread of life, everything is turned on its head. And we no longer have those things to hold on to. So there's something that's sort of discombobulating about the Holy Eucharist, and we have to allow that to happen. We have to let go of our hold on our own way of seeing things and understanding things in order that God might draw us along in faith to comprehend this infinite truth, this truth of infinite love. So Christ offering of self. And if you remember the print, in a t uh, the italicized print in red, it's just my little commentary before we get started. And uh, it's a rather lengthy reflection tonight. So I'm going to go through a little bit uh, longer sections before we stop it for comments and questions, uh, just so that it flows a little bit uh, more neatly uh, for us tonight. He paints with broad strokes. And so I'd like us to sort of pick that up before we stop to comment. True conversion comes when divine truth overflows our understanding of something or of life itself, where reason and earthly judgment is overcome by the revolution caused by God revealing himself to us. We are often unready for such a thing. Rather, we are struck at our inner depths. It is nothing short of a new birth. The great struggle of modern times is to let loose our grip on the illusory onto which we hold ferociously. There must be a break with a certain habit of mind and a willingness to grasp for the words that capture the truth revealed to us. This is so for every generation, and one might say particularly so for our generation. 
There are certain things, especially the central mystery of our faith and its enormity, that cannot be learned from books, sermons, or retreats. We either murmur and protest and gradually move away from the truth, or we allow ourselves to hold fast to Christ in a dumbfounded trust in his claims to be the bread of life. Guardini writes, every believer worthy of the name must sometime undergo the danger of scandal and its trial by fire. Even with a dim conception of things, we must choose as it were to allow ourselves to be drawn into Jesus' sacrifice of self and all of its personal implications for us. There's no genuine belief without battle. And so Gordini tells us, nothing helps but to warn ourselves. Here is the steepest, highest pinnacle of our faith for the narrowest, most precipitous pass through which we, which that faith must labor if it is to reach full essential freedom. Experience has shown that those who water down reality here at the summit of Christianity continue to do so all the way down the line. Sort of a prophetic thought on Guardini's part there. In their conceptions of the church, of the incarnation, of Christ's divine sonship, of the truth of the triune God, we are faced with the truth's supreme test, a perfect self-emptying love that we're called not only to receive, but imitate and become. There is no life without it. So you get the gist then of where he's going to be taking us, that there is some way in which we have to allow ourselves to be struck, dumbfounded, if you will, by the truth that we encounter. So long as we labor under the illusion that we can reach out and grasp what God is revealing to us, simply by our own power or our own understanding, we are in a foolhardy state. Uh, it's not that we aren't to use our intellect and reason to try to understand to the best of our ability what God has revealed of himself to us. In fact, that's part of our responsibility as Catholic Christians to try to articulate our faith to the best of our ability and to the limits of our capacities. But our starting point is that God has revealed himself to us. And our understanding of that reality only comes to us in and through the, the gift of faith. And there are going to be things that he has revealed to himself, about himself to us that should be shocking to us. The, the, the fact that we do not murmur, or the fact that we accept so easily uh, the things that have been revealed to us in the gospel and that we hear every single day at Mass, should maybe give us pause more than the fact that there were those in Jesus' day that murmured in protest and then walked away from him. Love your enemies. Do not resist one who is evil. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. All of these things we've, we've heard from the earliest years of our lives, especially if you're uh, cradle Catholics. Uh, but hearing it is not the same as really grasping it in all of its fullness or seeing the beauty of it. This is something that is only revealed to us through the gift of faith. It's not something we sim simply summon up within us through the powers of intellect and reason. And that's an important thing for us to understand as Christian men and women, because when we understand this, it forces us to our knees. 
that brings us to that fundamental relationship with God, that of prayer. And it's only in opening our hearts in this radical way to God in faith that he is able then to reveal to us the, the depths of his love. And so often we, we turn the, the faith into an intellectual pursuit. And I think that's where things begin to break down for us and our witness begins to break down. When we think of the new evangelization, it should not be simply groups, even a group like this, or it should not be you know, re- reading books. Fundamentally, it should be prayer and conversion of heart, repentance. These are all the things that open us in a far more radical way to God and allow him to reveal himself to us in the depths of our hearts. It's then that we make use of our intellect and reason to try to articulate that. But what's most important is what people encounter within us. They have to encounter this self-offering, the self-emptying love of the Eucharist in us, or our words are going to fall flat. It will be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, as St. Paul tells us. Okay, ready for Guardini? All right. Two things are necessary for true understanding. The first is the ability to compare, differentiate, and discern causal relations and interdependencies. This is important, but more important is something unteachable, a certain sensibility to the essence of things. This quality has nothing to do with that watchfulness which is quick to notice a danger or an advantage. Animals too have that faculty. It is equally far removed from curiosity, from eagerness to experience the unknown and the extraordinary for our own sakes. Avidness for experience is at best but a forerunner of the essential attitude. More often, it is a caricature of it and renders a man as incapable of genuine enlightenment as would indifference. So we're not like those on a Star Trek you know, what was the famous phrase that he uses? Traveling to unknown galaxies, you know, to discover, you know, I can't remember the phrase anymore. Come on, somebody from the older generation here can help me. <laughs> <laughs> to, go where, to go where no man has gone before. That's right. So it's not even like the explorer's spirit. It's, it's not the, you know, one who's seeking out new and unknown things. And it's not even curiosity. Some of these things can be preludes to a kind of openness to the truth or the sensibility that he's talking about here. But faith goes far, far further than this, is what he's trying to get, for, get, uh, get uh, put before us here. He goes on to say, the real prerequisite of enlightenment is an intellectual and more than intellectual readiness to be struck and shaken by the revelatory impact of a thing, not because of any personal fear or desire, for here we are already beyond the range of intent and purpose, not for the sake of diversion, for at this level things cease to belong to the interesting. Confronted with hidden meaning behind some image or pattern of images, man is moved to disclose it, and to clear for it a path into the open the truth may come into its own. So to, to be prepared to be shaken and struck 
this is what all of our intellectual work is to do. And I think in part, this is why those who are going off the seminary are compelled to study philosophy for so many years, uh, because it teaches you a way to think and to open yourself up to uh, seeking understanding, not telling yourself that you have all the answers. There has to be this willingness to open oneself up to a broader truth that is beyond one's immediate grasp. This is where one begins uh, to pursue the truth in order that it might unfold before, before them. And basically this is what Gordini is saying, confronted with the hidden meaning behind some image and pattern of images, a man is moved to disclose it and declare for it a path. And so there is a kind of spiritual work that we have to engage in as Christian men and women of clearing that path within us, things that would be an obstacle to faith or to receive what God desires to give us. Or again, it's allowing ourselves to be grasped by something greater than us, than our reaching out to take hold of something. Sensibility, he says, to the essence of things also exists, though of course in a different way in the realm of faith. Here the birth of a truth, the emergence of its essence into the light and spaciousness of recognition, are made possible not by any contact of intellect with significance, but by the power of God's light, grace. The object does not step from the world to confront the mind capable of discovering it. It does not exist in itself at all in the manner of earthly objects, which can be grasped, plumbed, exploited by exhaustive study. It exists only in God and must be given, revealed, by the divine word and received by faith. It always remains a mystery that transcends the created mind. Revealed truth is neither a continuation nor a new dimension of earthly truth, but something that completely overthrows earthly truth. And not only does it overthrow it, it brands it as untruth. When a man accepts divine truth in the obedience of faith, he is forced to rethink human truth. So a lot here in these few sentences. But uh, the, the part that st stuck out for me the most here is grasp that uh, these the truth that is revealed to us is not something that can be grasped, plumbed, exploited by exhaustive study. That there are no experts in the scripture. There are no experts in Christ or, or Christianity. And uh, anyone, you know, you might have a PhD after your name or any other, or MDiv, but that does not make one an expert in the life of faith. In fact, there can be a radical poverty, uh, especially if we are blinded too much, I think, by our own limited understanding of things. When we do cling too much to this idea that we can plumb the depths of this, and, you know, if we just search into it more and more, we're going to be able to articulate it in such a way that others will be able to grasp and understand it. And that can be a fundamental illusion, Gordini is saying. In fact, it can block us off from the, the truth altogether. It's really only one that has received the grace of God then that is capable of grasping that truth and then can articulate it for others. And so one who has never studied, 
but maybe knows the scriptures and has lived a life of deep prayer and repentance and has opened him or herself up to God in a radical way, can articulate the faith simply by who they are and how they engage each other, their countenance, a few simple words that capture the essence of the gospel, or maybe it's something within their touch, the look in the eye, the comfort that they offer that bears witness to the love, the mercy of God, and something of that infinite love. And certainly the martyr, who may speak no words in the bearing of his martyrdom, can bear witness to that selfless and self-emptying love of God with a perfect clarity. In fact, we know throughout history that there have been men and women who have been moved to conversion right at the moment that they witness a Christian go to their death because they're so moved by the depth of their faith and the depth of their courage and love in that moment that they are, in a sense, struck and shaken by it. I think that happened in the case of St. Lawrence and a number of others. I can't call to mind at the moment, but those who are watching by, and even those who had no faith at all or were soldiers who witnessed who witnessed these martyrdoms are immediately moved to conversion. And so we, we don't want to allow ourselves to lose that insight uh, from, from Christian history itself. Real truth is neither continuation nor a new dimension of earthly truth, but something that completely overthrows earthly truth. And not only does it overthrow it, it brands it as untruth. So again, a, a pretty strong statement because it's saying that anything that we can say about God simply from our position as human beings is always going to be failing in a radical way unless it arises out of this experience of God and through faith. So you see what what Gordini is saying there, that you can have the most articulate, intelligent person who's speaking about God or the nature of God but not speaking from that place of faith. And so what they're they're saying, far from being the truth, is radical untruth. This is why the fathers of the church would say that true theology only arises out of experience of God. And so a person whose theology arises not out of that experience of God is not doing theology in its its, uh, rightful measure, but is doing demonic theology. So what they might be preaching and proclaiming can be half-truths that can actually lead people down the road of delusion or lead people ultimately into a radical untruth. And so I think Guardini's not pulling any punches, I think, in this, in this little reflection. He's, he's really telling us it's grace alone, and it's grace alone received through the gift of faith that allows us not only to perceive the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, but to receive it in such a way that it can be transformative. The moment we try to control it, the moment we try to manage this extraordinary grace that comes to us is when things begin to crumble for us and it becomes something distorted. And I don't think we have to look too hard at Christian history to see how many times that that has been happening what it means, how deeply, you know, what the nature of the church is or what it is to be a Christian has been distorted beyond, uh, you know, beyond understanding and turned into something grotesque. 
know, uh, as a use of power or control or authority, not the authority of love and humility and selfless love. Uh, this is what we are to bear witness to, the power of the cross in the world, the self-emptying love of God, not this authority that reigns from down on high and seeks to pe- put people in, in their place to correct them. And I think Newman understood this well. We've talked about him before. You know, one of the greatest intellects of the 19th century, great uh, theologian, great church historian, said we, to think that we can argue a person into faith is a, absurd as thinking that we can torture them into the faith. And so right there he's saying the same thing that Juan Guardini is saying. But the moment that we think that simply by the gift of our intellect and reason, we can give to somebody something that is only a gift of God, we are fundamentally deluded. We can pray for them to receive that, and we can make use of all the gifts that we have to try to articulate that and to clarify you know, misunderstandings or take opportune moments. But we can never labor under the illusion that we're giving them simply something through our understanding that is going to be equal to the gift of faith. Ultimately, that's something that only God can give. I think that quote should be like a little pop-up that appears on the screen every time you go on social media. <laughs> it would be, yeah, it's, be helpful. It's, it's striking because every when I have posted it in the past, people say, oh, you know, perhaps I should get off Twitter like right now. Because I, I think it is the essence of social media to argue and to see who can get, you know, one foot up on the other and correct the other for their their, their error in thinking. And so nobody thinks about praying for somebody else or making sacrifices. Uh, again, it is sort of a, a mental battle, an intellectual battle that they engage in with others. And the problem with that is that it feeds upon itself. And it just goes on and on and it comes, at times it becomes more and more virulent. You know, anger sort of feeds on anger and then eventually their discussion breaks apart. James, did you, did you have yeah, a question? Yeah, my mind is okay. coming out of my ears. Um, yeah, just I'm thinking about the whole social media thing, you know, um, and it seems like when we get into these arguments, it's, you know, we're talking about revelation, and it seems like when, when argument enters into the picture, there's more, it's more about concealment than about revealing something. Right. Um, just a thought. That yeah. yeah, I think in some ways it is. It's a, a darkening of the truth comes about there. Because once bitterness and anger comes into the picture, then on some level we are blind. We don't see the truth as it is. And because then we lose sight of the dignity of the other person. And uh, so dialogue at that point bears no fruit. At least not fruit that would be pleasing to God. It might be pleasing to the individual. You know, the kind of delight, morbid delight that one has in uh, gaining a position of superiority over another, but how does that advance the kingdom, or how does that bring another person to the faith? It's like people are elevating themselves to, to gods themselves. Yeah. You know? yeah, and that's always the danger, I think, for the Christian. The men and women of faith are capable of the greatest of delusions. Like, as human beings, we're all capable of that, you know, of going down this path where we lose sight of reality. 
but for the men, men or women of faith. You know, the moment that we sort of get off of this path or we understand that this is all gift and that we have to humbly receive it and we fall into a kind of pride in the way that we engage others, then we're lost. We become more like the demons in the gospel and the... Satan becomes more our father than God. And, you know, Christ himself was that direct with the Pharisees at times, you know, that to come into contact with them, he says at one point, if you remember, it's like, uh, they're like whitewashed tombs that men and women walk across unawares. So they're like dead, rotting individuals, but to come into contact with a dead body in those days was to make oneself richly unclean and so, in a sense, excommunicated that you were not able to enter into the worship of the temple. And so he's basically telling everybody, stay away from them. Don't don't go near them. So little wonder they wanted to put them to death. I mean, we don't often we don't pick that up anymore because we think you know it wasn't a he wasn't praising them at, at that point. It's, it's also a reaction I find that people have to the truth. It doesn't it tends to bring some uh, if there's something in, within them that is um, not true. Faith when you face the uh, truth with that person, it brings that out and it creates this violent reaction. Yeah. Our, our, def- our defenses go up and you know a person who is humble is not going, going to be fearful of the truth so entering into discussion with anyone should not be something that causes us anxiety if we believe truth is a person truth is Christ then our ability to engage anybody about him or any, uh, engage people about anything really should not be a cause of fear for us and that we would always approach those discussions with a kind of humble openness, the desire for understanding, in particular in talking to another person that we know nothing about, that our first approach to them should be, who is this person? How do I understand them? Not judging them by their external appearance or by the words that they say, or even how they engage us, because at first, you know, that first impression could be a negative one. What if, you know, they've suffered and they seem angry and their experience of everybody up to that point has been one of abuse, verbal abuse, and sometimes physical abuse. And so, you know, they're not going to be very trusting of other, other, other human beings. And so if we take a stance towards another person of wanting to understand them, you know, that we suspend judgment in order that the mystery of the other might gradually be revealed to us, suddenly our capacity to love is elevated. The moment that we shrink a person down to simply what we're seeing, hearing, or perceiving, then we've made them much less than what God has created them. If they're made in the image and likeness of God, there should be a kind of awe that we have in the face of another individual. Even when we don't understand, or even when I think they may be engaging us in a way that is harsh or in some ways diminishing. It's a hard thing to do. I mean, I'm not trying to make this sound easy. I think it requires a lot of grace, of course. But I think what he's saying here can also be applied to our life. The way that we approach Christ and the revelation of himself and the Eucharist should also be the way that we approach other people who have received, who are made in his image and likeness, who have been baptized, who bear within them 
the love that they received in the Eucharist, and also the gift of his own spirit. And we very quickly lose sight of that. And part of it, I think, is this defensive posture. You know, we're thrown back into it when somebody is saying something that maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable, especially when it's about ourselves. And we usually know, you know, when there's something about our truth that another person sees. You know, and they capture it, and we, we immediately, you know, we, what is that? They, we get our hackles up. That's an old word, too. I'm showing my, see, I'm showing, I'm showing my age. I am 65. <laughs> I find it so much of myself and other people where it's so invested in what we think we know, and, um, you know, we cling to that. Whatever it is with that knowledge, whatever we think it is, that truth is, we cling so tightly onto it. And then if somebody challenges that, and then we can't have to hold on even tighter to it. Um, but this, this phrase in here that really struck me here says it's always a mystery that transcends the created mind. Right. And uh, for me, I think the um, Christ is a mystery to be entered and experienced, not to be really known. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. This. Um, because in some way, we're always speaking about God. So even, you know immersed in the in that relationship in the most intimate fashion there's always going to be a deeper immersion and a never-ending immersion in that love you know we're talking about intimacy with god the eternal god and there's something beautiful about that but the moment again we shrink him down into something that we can sort of conceptualize then we lose sight of that and when we lose sight of that then we also lose some sight of something of our dignity as human beings who've been called to participate in that reality. You know, I think our sense of ourselves when reading this, it's humbling, but at the same time, it lifts us up. It's telling us this is only something you receive by as a gift, but it's also saying that God loves you so much that he gives you this as a gift. And in the humbling is an exalting. You're being lift up, lifted up to this intimate relationship of love with the most holy trinity. And so if we see that about our, if we see that as our dignity and destiny, we're also going to see it in the other person. That this is their fundamental dignity and destiny. And so they're to be loved. And it would also be something that we would want for every other person that we experience too. I think we're we're more than willing to sort of cast off people in more than one way. You know, certainly to cast them out of our lives, but we're willing to cast them into hell if you will, you know, quite literally. I mean, we're, we're willing to dismiss people, you know. Certainly, you know, there are those who are guilty of horrendous acts and things such as that. But even there, I think that the Christian has to refrain and pull back from them, knowing that we do not see, we do not see even a fraction of the truth about the mystery of that human person. I like... I'm thinking of something that I, I probably not going to articulate well, but sometimes when we're reading these things, I think about the responsibility we have to that like every interaction we have with other people is going to form them in some way. It's called like we're like constantly being sort of formed by every little interaction we have, whether that's like a big thing or a little thing. Um, and I do think it's especially like very true of parents. 
But um, it's something I've been thinking about for a couple days, is what you just said, where like it's really humbling. But at the exact same moment that it's very humbling that all we can do is receive it, it's like we're loved so much that we're being given it. And I've been thinking that in terms of forgiveness as well. Like, it's just, it's so hard to accept. Like, it's so humbling because it's like, I feel like I especially am very capable of articulating my own faults, but like, you shouldn't. Like, yeah, like, I'm fine with saying what's wrong with me, but, like, you shouldn't agree too eagerly or decide to do that for yourself because, like, I can bear doing it to myself, but I can't handle it. I can help you along with that. You're allowed to, but, you know, and um, I'm just thinking, like, like, how often do we have that modeled as we grow up? That at the same moment, our sinfulness is, is is affirmed, like, yeah, that was wrong, or the need for forgiveness is affirmed. At the exact same moment, there's an experience of extraordinary love, where it's like, I can accept that you are sinful, and I can forgive you, and I love you so much. So that, and like, what a responsibility we have to each other to model that, because, like, because that makes us capable of receiving that from the Lord. And I don't think I'm entirely there where I can receive forgiveness and also an experience of his love. And in my mind, they're still so separate. Um, it's like, you forgive me and you love, like, but you love, like, it's just so weird. Like, you love me, but you're saying I am sinful, Lord. Like, um, and I just, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just think about that. Well, I think... You know, that's why religious communities practiced the ch- chapter of faults. You know, to sort of develop that practice, it is hard to acknowledge one's weaknesses before others and then to ask for their pardon, and but then also to receive it. So to get up in front of your community and say, you know, I've been a crabby guy all week, or I've lacked, <laughs> I've lacked joy, or I haven't done, you know, I haven't done these duties, you know, these ways that I have felt to live, you know, the oratorian life or the Benedictine life. And we've gotten away from these little practices that sort of guide us along that path. And we have become more and more defended, you know, and defensive when those things come out in the light. Well, let's move on. We have, we have a lot to, to get through here this evening. The conversion he must make embraces his whole conception of the universe, which he must conceive anew in its entirety. His readiness to do so is the measure of his enlightenment. Yet all this upheaval, his natural reason stands firm. For the Logos who speaks in Revelation is the same Logos who created the universe. Thus the depth of a man's true knowledge depends upon the impact of the divine knowledge he has received. The point that is struck lies much deeper than mere intellectual readiness for truth. Somewhere in the inmost depths of new birth and the new man. And so it's not as though, you know, God has created us in the way that he has in a certain reason, in a certain way, and also to make use of the gift of intellect and reason. But there is something radically new that has taken place in Christ. God has revealed himself as never before and his son and perfectly. And so our whole view of the universe, our whole understanding of the universe itself, according to is challenged. 
everything about our experience of ourselves and the world is turned on its head. And we have, we have to be prepared for that. In fact, that's in the introduction, I mentioned that we have to, well, the one thing that we can do is warn ourselves, okay, buddy, get ready, because entering into this relationship is going to turn your world upside down. And you have to be prepared for that. And some of the groups, we talked about that movie of St. Francis of Assisi, where the first image of the movie is St. Francis as a little boy hanging by his legs on a swing, swinging back and forth. And so you see this upside down view of the world. And in reality, that's what sort of happened in Francis's life, but in everybody he came into contact with as well. But he began to view life in the way that God had revealed it to him, manifested to him. And by embracing that, living it fully, everybody around him was affected. And some of them were discombobulated by it and thought that he was nuts and had gone insane. And eventually, though, there were many who came to see and embrace what he came to see and embrace in faith. Revelation presents 20th century believers with a special difficulty. We are latecomers. Our generation has heard the sacred tidings time and time again. Moreover, we live in an age that is constantly reading and writing and talking and hearing. There is such a continuous turnover of words that our coinage is worn smooth and thin. The stamp has grown blurred. Instead of truth, we have truth's caricatures. Instead of knowledge, the illusion of already knowing. Only with great effort can we free ourselves from illusory knowledge to pause, look up, and passionately inquire into the clear-cut, genuine truth of things. Are we then doomed to become incapable of possessing divine truth? Certainly not, for truth is meant for all ages. However, we must recognize and apply ourselves to this century's particular barriers of truth if we wish to clear them. Above all, we must relearn composure, meditation, absorption, precisely the things that are different chapters of this book, different chapters of this book attempted to describe. We must break the strings of habits, must rid ourselves of fateful seeming knowledge. We must remint our words so that they may again speak clearly, truthfully. And so I've often mentioned to you Cardinal Seurat, and that I, I think he's sort of a prophetic voice, at least in our day and age. In particular, his, his work, uh, The Power of Silence. Because again, he's saying what Guardini is saying here, that we live in an age where talking, speaking, writing, hearing is continuously going on. And then the image that Guardini uses here is, is beautiful. It's like our coinage has grown thin that we do so much talking and, uh, and arguing that we've worn down the image of Christ and it's become un unrecognizable. But we've worn down the image of the truth and it's become unrecognizable to us. And he says it almost becomes a caricature rather than the reality. And so what we have to do is silence things in our hearts and allow, if you will, that coin to be reminted, to be re-stamped re in order that we might perceive the truth again. And this is exactly what uh, Cardinal Seurat is speaking about in his book, that before we can evangelize, we have to enter into that silence 
where we allow God to speak that word that is equal to himself and that allow him to so deeply imprint it upon our souls then we, that we become capable of recognizing divine truth and reality again. And it's then that we have the ability, we'll have the ability to articulate it to others, but not before. If we, if we step back and we simply do what we've done before, and that has led us into a kind of new dark age and into a pre-pagan kind of culture, uh, then more like barbarian in some ways, that how is it that we are going to articulate this, this love, the selfless love that has been revealed to us, unless we've encountered it within our hearts. <clears throat> and it's, again, it's hard in a day like ours to slow things down that, that much. It's almost like one has to make the conscious decision to say, I'm not going to speed read. I'm not going to do that. everything that's been taught to me since first grade, where you read to get through the exam, and then you throw the book away, or throw the notes away, and forget about it. And, or that you simply become, you know, receptacles for information, or where you're standing on the shoulders, if you will, of greater minds that have gone before you. So those who've really struggled with these things and opened themselves up to them in a profound way, through lived experience and that striving, and and yet we we sort of take hold of what they're saying, we quote it, we use it, but have no experiential knowledge of it in our own hearts. There's one modern uh, elder who said, when we read the fathers of the church, we can't read it as dilettantes, that we're just trying to uh, gain this knowledge and show ourselves as having this knowledge, this broad knowledge of the fathers that we can talk about freely. He said, you know, what purpose does that have? And it's not going to ring true to anyone. It's not going to have an effect upon you, but it's not going to ring true to anyone unless you're living it, unless you're bearing witness to it, unless you become that truth that are said. The Lord's memorial is the central mystery of our Christian life. It has taken the form of a meal at which he offers himself as the food. We were taught this in communion instruction of our childhood. We hear it repeated again and again in sermons and retreats. We read it in religious books. Yet are we really aware of the stupendousness of the thought? It must have been important to the Lord that his hearers were conscious of it. For when he proclaimed the establishment of the mystery, he stressed the enormity of it in a manner that could not have been accidental. His words at Capernaum sound quite different from those of the actual establishment where they were frugal and calm. So he's talking about there the institution of the Eucharist. Those, you know, the words were very clear and definite that we hear in the Gospels of the institution of the Eucharist itself. But when he's speaking here in Capernaum about himself as being the bread of life, the, the words become much different. During the tremendous act that took place on Monday, Thursday, he no longer dwells on its tremendous significance. The great test of faith has already taken place. The decision has fallen. Those who hear him now have already proved themselves. For Capernaum, Jesus so drastically confronted his ears with the otherness of the divine that they were not only struck, but struck down. 
The report reads, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. The Jews murmured about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And they kept saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then does he say, I've come down from heaven? The protest is directed not at the mystery of the Eucharist, which has yet to be been proclaimed, not yet been proclaimed, but at Jesus' claim to be in person, the bread of faith, eternal truth. What does the Lord do? He does not mitigate what he has said. He does not attempt to explain by pointing out his place in the sacred prophecies. He goes still further, pressing the sharp point of the blade home. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert and have died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that if anyone eat of it, he will not die. If anyone eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Now they feel the full shock of the blow. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. It would seem to be high time to modify these words, or at least to explain them. Instead of coming to the rescue of his floundering hearers, Jesus adds, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life everlasting, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. At this, the first split runs through the group of disciples. Many of his disciples therefore said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus' closest followers are hard-pressed, but he does not help them. He forces them to a decision of life or death. Are they ready to accept the fullness of revelation, which necessarily overflows earthly wisdom? Or do they insist on judging revelation, delimiting its possibilities from their own perspective? Does this scandalize you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some among you who do not believe. The Jews who first murmured against Jesus have already dispersed. Now also many of his disciples leave him. Jesus turns to the remaining hardcore. Do you also wish to go away? Still not a word of help, only the hard, pure demand for a decision. Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast words of everlasting life. We have come to believe and to know that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. They do not understand either but are struck by the power of the mystery, they surrender themselves to it. They are dumbfounded but trustful, at least most of them. Not all, as we see from Jesus' reply, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Now he was speaking of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, 
for he it was, the one of the twelve, who was to betray him. So I think this is the, the most beautiful that I've ever heard this articulated and with as much passion, this whole experience of uh, the Jews that were listening to Jesus and then his own disciples and then finally those who would remain. And uh, Jesus does not soften his words at all. In fact, he goes further each time in order to press and stretch their faith. So instead of backing off and trying to explain it to them in a way that they can understand, each time he's trying to stretch their faith to see if they're willing to receive revelation as it's given, as it's being given to them, or are they going to try to restrict it in some way? And so it's a terrible test. And in the end, it's not because they come to understand. They're dumbfounded, Cordini says, but it's they trust in him. They trust in him and they love them, love him, and so they make a ascent. Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the Son of God. You are the one who have the words of everlasting life. They make the ascent of faith that then makes it possible for them to receive the truth in all of its fullness. And even that would only come gradually over the course of time. They would still struggle. They all betray him. They all flee. We know the couple of them were running out of town on the road to Emmaus until he appears to them and reveals them to them, to them himself as precisely as the bread of life. That their faith is once again enlivened and they go back to Jerusalem. But uh, I think this is, again, it's the most striking passage of the whole book of meditations for me. And it's what I find myself meditating upon the most because it's, we often take it for granted. And I think when we lose this sense of being dumbfounded by this mystery, when we, we, we lose that sense of not having everything figured out, like we, we get this, we get what the Lord is doing here, and we understand there's something special here that we receive. That's why everybody comes up with, as a herd to receive Holy Communion. It's not necessarily because there is a, a grasping of this fundamental revelation that God is making that should make us fall down on our knees if, if we understood it. I think, did I tell you the story that one time that there were these greatest people who would come to Mass and their daughter was ill, and uh, they had a friend who was Catholic, and so they would all have a Mass offered for her, and they would come to Mass. But uh, they were in the front row on one Sunday when this gospel was read. And so it was hard, because they were Presbyterian. <laughs> and I remember, you know, and they laughed about it, you know, and they weren't, uh, they weren't, because uh, I didn't say it in a mean way. But in reality, these were the first Protestants they murmur and protest, the scriptures tell us. They murmur and protest about what Jesus is saying. There's something that is too hard for them to grasp, that doesn't fit within their concept of who God is or who he can be for them. And so in their unwillingness to receive that revelation, they murmur and protest against him and against it, and they, they leave. And... You know, there are many ways, I think, that we still murmur 
and protest against. We might not murmur and protest specifically about the Eucharist. What we typically murmur and protest about is what the meaning of the Eucharist is for us. When we have to offer ourselves in love as Christ offers himself in the Eucharist, when we have to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out in, in love for others. That's when we murmur and protest, come on, God, you know, what are you doing here? You know, where is God in the midst of this? When we're receiving him in the Eucharist, I think we, you know, as men and women of faith, we can do that quite readily and joyfully. But when it comes to the Lord saying, you know, follow me in this, now I'm asking you to allow yourself to be broken and poured out in love for another. And it's not going to make sense in the eyes of the world. It's not going to seem beautiful in the eyes of the world. You probably won't understand it even when it's happening to you. You know, but it's going to call forth from you a faith that requires that you give the same assent. Where are we to go, Lord? Give the words of everlasting life. Something deep within the mind and the heart that is strengthened by faith has to be able to utter those words. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will when we don't see anything with any clarity at all, and when we're sweating blood, you know, because God has asked us to walk down a certain path. Still with me? Yeah. Okay. It was to such rigorously tested men that Jesus entrusted the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. It was they who at the Last Supper first received the sacred nourishment. Apparently, there is no genuine belief without battle. Every believer worthy of the name must sometime undergo the danger of scandal and its trial by fire. Some, some the intrinsically shielded children of God, are unable to come through, certainly not the majority. We too must have felt the enormity of what took place at Capernaum of that which so incensed the Jews and so shocked many of the disciples that they declared Jesus' words intolerable and left him. It was the shock that probably shattered Judas's faith. The other 11 saving themselves only by a blind leap of trust to the master's feet. The impact of the message of Capernaum by no means leaves an impression of idyllic and sentimental wonderment as the average book of devotions suggests. It is an unheard of challenge flung not only at the mind, but as we see from the stark scene at Capernaum, at the heart as well. There stands Christ and declares that he desires to give himself to us, to become the content and power of our lives. How can one person give himself to another? Not things that he possesses or knowledge or experience or help or trust or respect or love or even community of life, but his body and his soul to be our food and our drink. Great paragraph. Because he's you know, saying there that there might be those rare few of the children of God who come upon this stone and find it to be a stepping stone to greater faith. But there are probably this little majority that for God has bestowed this great faith on and who responded to it, like Therese of Lisieux. <laughs> you know, these, these ones who seem to sort of show this extraordinary faith, Marie Gretti, whose feast we just celebrated. But for the majority of us, what Gardini is saying, is that we're going to come across that and it's going to seem like a stumbling block 
is going to seem to be the scandal, which is what the, what the root of the word is, scandal on, it's a stumbling, stumbling block. And so, in, in a way, Gordini is saying, we have to allow ourselves to encounter this. We have to allow ourselves to, to experience it because other, he says, it's not like it's written about in the pious books of devotion. Not that I have anything, you know, I don't want anybody walking around. So again, saying that Father David's bad-mouthing devotional books. But <laughs> I think what Guardini is saying here is that sometimes our devotional writing can become like that. It can be written in this kind of flowery tone that creates this false sense of idyllic wonderment. Whereas what Christ is doing is confronting them with this self-emptying love that costs everything in order to give us everything. And if we are going to understand what it means to receive that and give it to others, we can't idealize it. We can't romanticize it and tur turn it into this you know, pie in the sky kind of thing. Because when, and when we re in reality come up against that stumbling block, we're going to trip over it. If that is the image that we have in mind, it's only when our faith is been tested and it's deep that we can then find it to be this, the stepping stone that it's meant to be for us. What raises us up in our capacity to love and to experience the love of God. So it's very important because I think, you know, in, in our day and age, catechesis often stops very early on. So an understanding of the faith stops very early on, but also a kind of spiritual development, you know, of being drawn into this mystery in a deeper and deeper way. And, you know, it becomes this obligation and people are emotionally as well as intellectually disconnected from it, but on a deeper level, on a level of faith, disconnected from it too. And so there has to be something that takes place in that formation that is really focused on the, the deepening of faith. First for ourselves, of course, but then also for our children and for those who are entrusted to us, that we, we give ourselves over to God and we enter into this process of purification and allowing our faith to deepen in such a way that we not, we not only see it in our minds, but we've experienced it, tasted the sweetness of it, want others to taste the sweetness of that. And, you know, I think it's only when people have confidence that the one who's talking about it, you know, understands that they, that they begin to wander themselves or become open to experiencing it in the same way. Yes? It's an interesting... Um it's, an, it's interesting how intense the extent of arrogance is in something I experience in myself all the time, which is that, like, even on the level of human knowledge, like scientific human knowledge, like, I, I know so much less than I don't know. Like, like, um, like, the ratio of what I know to what I know and don't know is just, like, enormous. And, and yet... When it comes to things like this, like revealed mysteries, my inability to understand it makes me more inclined to think it can't be true than, than that it would. Like as if my ability to understand, like 
you know, you know what I mean? Like, well, I should be able to kind of grasp this if this is real. And it's like, I don't even know how my cell phone works. Like, I, I have no idea how my cell phone works at all. I think about that every day. I have no idea how it works. I don't even know how old-fashioned telephones work. Um, but I have as much evidence in my life of my cell phone working as I do that there is there are forces of, of providence and grace and miraculous things going on that I just don't understand. And I just expect that I'm going to be able to understand it so much better. And recently I've been like taking comfort in thinking about all of the saints and how much of a blessing it is that while we do have really humble saints and uh, like, like St. Bernadette, just like totally uneducated, we also have like extraordinarily brilliant saints. And I take so much comfort in that because I'm like people who on the level of human knowledge are so much more intelligent than I am have submitted and humbled their will um, and their intellect to revealed mysteries. And that's really just like such a blessing when human geniuses are also men of faith. It's a really beautiful thing. Who we'll ultimately bow down yeah. before God and yeah. the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't help but think that there is something, that, a thread that runs through this whole thing. For me, there's this word that just keeps like a, it's like a symbol, and it's the word trust. You know, we don't have to understand it, we just need to trust it. And I saw something interesting recently about faith. You know, that um, a lot of people say that faith is believing without evidence. And um, I, I was given another definition of faith, which is um, believing in the testimony of one who is trustworthy. It's another definition of faith. But um, your, on your example about the, how, how my cell phone works, like we use electricity every day, and people even. Very few people understand electricity, but we rely on it. You know, everything we do, we, we come to reliance. We don't question it. We don't need to figure it out. We don't need to understand it. We just say it's there for us. It's there for us. It's a source, and we can plug into it. You know, and the same thing with with God. It's a source that we can plug into. I don't need to understand it. I just need to trust it. It's like this meme you know? I saw today that said the top was like, "Do I need the Holy Spirit to be saved?" Was the question, and the little answer at the bottom was, "Honey, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart." <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was perfect. It was like, yes, he's not just the operate, like he's not just the the like the Lord and giver of life. That that makes possible like the these like extraordinary acts of, of faith or something like he's like the living force behind our very existence. Like you can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. So like he's animating every single part of your life. So of course you need him because you can't function without him. It's like yeah. There was something else I came across that I thought was very wise, and it's this idea like. Humans, we have this voracious appetite to try to figure things out, to try to understand them. The thing that happens is the harder we try to understand something, the less we understand. And um, or there's something more. There's always more. You know, we get to one point, and then there's something more. I mean, so we never. It's it's like something asymptotic. You know, we never we never get there. Um, so again, it comes back to trust. It's like um, you know, I don't need to understand. It's not going to bring me peace to try to understand. 
this gives me peace to trust that there's something there. Or the, the comprehension comes in a way that it's not going to be defined by our limitations. And I think this is where we look to some of the doctors of the church. You know, St. John of the Cross, you know, I've always found his definition of faith to be helpful because for him, faith is a knowing. It's a dark, obscure knowing. And it's dark and obscure. It's experienced that way for us because intellect, reason cannot take us there. You know, when it comes to encountering God as he is in himself, all those things fall silent. But it's through the gift of faith that we comprehend. So faith is a knowing. And it's when we walk along that path of faith, we allow ourselves to be drawn along, and sometimes into that darkness, then we comprehend God. He reveals himself to us in this powerful way. A ray of light will shine through that darkness and illuminate the mind and the heart. And, you know, this is what liturgy is meant to help us do. You know, if we were to celebrate it in such a way that this is our mysticism, it's through the sacramental life, it's through the Holy Eucharist and through confession that God has given us these means to encounter him in this concrete, tangible way. And so if we enter with this faith into the celebration of the Holy Liturgy, this is where we're going to comprehend him and experience him in the deepest of ways. That's where we would come to an understanding. But now we've become minimalist and we move away from that more and more. And I think in doing that, we sort of hobble ourselves. I think, Anthony, did I see your hand creeping up in the back? There? Yes, I was just struck by what Jim was saying. You know, that, uh, I read somewhere about St. Faustina, you know, that somebody remarked that mm-hmm. Jesus didn't tell her Paint under the picture, Jesus, I love you, or Jesus, I adore you, or anything like that. But Jesus, I trust, trust in you. And that really trust is the only thing that can get us there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think your observation is a good one. I think that's what Guardinia is leading us to. And what, just by, you know, what he observes in the apostles themselves. This idea of uh, both coming to mind for me is um, the title of our talk here is Christ's offering himself as a, a nourishment. Just like uh, it's a, there are different kinds of knowing, right? So I can know on a cognitive, intellectual level something, but also say uh, I can know that I'm hungry or know that when I'm satiated, whatever. It's not it's not up here. It's a different kind of knowing. So it's different. That's right. So we're being nourished upon life of truth in the Holy Eucharist. It's an extraordinary thing. Let's just go through the remainder of the text and then we'll open it up for final thoughts. And he means it really, not spiritually. The quotation on which the symbolists base their theory, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh profits nothing by no means indicates that Jesus' words over the bread and wine were intended to mean, my spirit shall fill you, my strength shall strengthen you. He might have said this, but he did not. The whole point of the speech of Capernaum is its insistence on real flesh, real blood, real eating and drinking. In the spirit, of course, but that means in the Holy Spirit. The Lord was referring to the sacrifice. Yes, not to the Yes, but not as the hearer's familiarity with temple sacrifice which it suggests, not in the general and personal sense of the Old Testament, but in the intimate mystery of faith. 
the glorious reality of Jesus' sacrifice compares with the disciples' dim conception of it as the risen body of the Lord and the full power of the Holy Spirit with the body that stands before them. Nothing helps but to warn ourselves. Here is the steepest, highest pinnacle of the faith, or the narrowest, most precipitous pass through which that faith must labor if it is to reach full essential freedom. Experience has shown that those who water down reality here at the summit of Christianity continue to do so all the way down the line in their conceptions of the church, of the incarnation, of Christ's divine sonship, of the truth of the triune God. The test of Capernaum is in truth's faith, in, in truth, faith's supreme test. The man who refuses to master his feelings when they stand between him and God is unfit for the kingdom of God. This is where the great conversion, the change of measuring rods, takes place. Not until the earnestness of the decision has been felt and the danger of scandal faced and overcome does the miracle of this ultimate mystery unfold. Then suddenly, as if self-understood, comes the blissful knowledge that love perfectly fulfilled, can give not only all it has, but all it is itself. No earthly love is ever perfectly fulfilled. To love in the earthly sense means to strive for the impossible. St. John gives us the clue to the otherness of divine love. Not only does God love, God is lover. He alone not only desires to love, but can love to the end. Jesus desires that men receive and make their own the gift of his vital essence, strength, his very person, as fully and intimately as they receive and assimilate the strength and nourishment of bread and wine. He even adds that the person who is not so nourished cannot possess an ultimate life. No earthly gift of love even if it were possible, could ever be the perfect gift that Jesus' offering, self-offering is, utterly devoid of accompanying impurities and toxins. He is total purity, total power, total vitality, and more. The prerequisite of the immortal, ultimate life, which alone is capable of existence before God throughout eternity. Jesus really means what he said at the Last Supper. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where thou art going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So a beautiful way, I think, to conclude the reflection. But it is faith, uh, faith's supreme test and I think there's something that ha- the, in us that has to allow ourselves to undergo that test on a regular basis. Or we aren't really grasping the, mag- the magnanimity of, of the gift itself. That, uh, you know, as Ren was saying, you know, I don't know how my cell phone works, and I sort of take that for granted and just use it. And, but we don't have the luxury of doing that in our relationship with God. We cannot simply seize the Eucharist and use it in a self-serving and utilitarian way. God has chosen to enter into the most intimate relationship with us, to be lover. 
and to give himself to us in love and to give us a perfect love that is not tainted by any, as Gordini says, toxin and does not know the limits that our human love often show. God offers us everything, a perfect and infinite love. And so, you know, we find ourselves like, like Thomas. We don't, do not know the way where to go. And Christ simply tells them, I, I am the way. And I think so often in our discussions of Christianity, we, we lose this simple sort of starting point for ourselves, that Christ himself is the way. For us, truth is a person. Life is a person. Christ has given himself to us to nourish us to everlasting life. So that brings us to the end of the reflection. Anybody have any final comments? Uh, it blew me away when I, when I read it the first time. But, yes? Just wanted to say that uh, I'm going to go home and write down for myself that one sentence that the man who refuses to master his feelings when they stand between him and God is unfit for the kingdom of God. I just um, just very much so needed that. Like, that the sort of, like, your faith not being dependent on feelings then really is so kind of driven. Right. And I, I think it brings into focus also the ascetical life. And this is the connection with the other groups that we've had here on, on the fathers, because part of what is taking place there is that we are not acknowledging that because of sin, that uh, thoughts can give rise to feelings, feelings to desires, and then desires can lead us to the passions to sort of take hold of our life and distort our vision of the truth. And so it's by entering into the ascetic life of prayer, but also receiving the medicine, if you will, of immortality through the confessional and through the Holy Eucharist, that those passions are healed and that we are able to get, regain that purity of heart that allows us to see in faith this extraordinary gift that God has given to us. And so what he says there, he refuses to master his feelings when they stand between him and God. It's not fit for the kingdom. That there has to be a part of us that enters into the battle that he talks about in the beginning of the page right before this. There's no genuine belief without battle. You know, that we enter into this spiritual warfare and with principalities and powers, with the very demons themselves who would cloud our, our vision, that would keep us from seeing this profound truth of our faith and the dignity and destiny that lie within it. I was just going to add to Jen, what Jen was talking about with regard to trust. Um, the, the thing that, and the line that struck me very strongly was that they do not understand either, but struck by the power of the mystery, they surrender themselves to it. And with regard to being able to trust, I think that we're all called to first be able to surrender. And um, I think, I know for myself, that's constantly a struggle, um, but I think most people struggle with surrender because we are in an age of information and wanting to know for the sake of knowing. Um, uh, information rather than really knowing. That's, you know? that's right. It's, it's not. It's not relational. Yeah. You know, in terms of what we we often seek, that relationships are built upon trust, 
and we see that in marriages, you know, that there is that gradual revelation, revelari, the drawing back of the veil, a greater and greater vulnerability. But in that vulnerability, then comes that greater capacity to give oneself in love. And so in Christ, we see himself make, make himself radically vulnerable. You know, he who is the son of God allows himself to be stripped naked and pinned to the cross until death. That absolute vulnerability and pours himself out until he breathes his last. The very spirit that you know dwells within him breathes his last upon the cross in order that life might come upon the church. And the only other thing that I, I wanted to mention is just that I, you know, Christ never, Jesus never watered down the message, and I would imagine as a priest. It must be the, the gravity of that, like, probably would have you shaking in your shoes every single time you celebrate Mass. And I think that... Um, Let's put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that puts it mildly. Um, however, it seems as though perhaps some priests in Persona Christi will, through their reverence or lack thereof, during celebration of the mass and or their lack of their own preparation through maybe their prayer rule. And that kind of comes out maybe with regard to the type of homily or maybe the training of homiletics and what the parameters are surrounding the type of homiletics, homilies that are allowed to be given in this day and age are such that the form donation of what's happening from the altar during the sacrifice of the mass, perhaps is not the best gift that should that the congregation, ought, the laity, ought to be hearing. Because honestly, Christ Jesus didn't run after the people who walked out and walked away from that. Like at least that's my understanding. So what are we so worried about? Why can't you know, I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, so to speak, uh, through the training of our ordained. But it just seems like what needs to be said and, and what needs to be upheld with regard to the reverence and what we're actually approaching has been kind of really diminished over time. And, well, and, yeah. But it's been diminished across the board. Yeah. I don't think we want to fall into a kind of false clericalism here in the saying, okay, the, the fault lies here in the formation. No, I'm not saying you're doing that. Uh, but there, there, I think it's it's more, you know, that it's happened to us as a body. And when we see that, that there's been a banalizing of the liturgy and our celebration of the Eucharist, that we've come in so many ways to take for granted what we do, that we don't have this kind of, of fear and trembling that emerges both in the proclamation of that word, but also the receiving of that word is our very food and drink in the in the Eucharist. That we, in some sense, have lost that that reverence. And when we see that, the response to it should be repentance, conversion of life, because ultimately that's where the strengthening of the body of the church as a whole becomes. This is where I think all the arguments and the critiques of the Pope and this bishop and that bishop all fall short. 
because our, our response should be deeply personal. When we see evil within the world, or when we see sin within the church, or we see a, a lack of zeal or a priest that isn't faithful, our response to that reality should not be to critique. Our response to that reality should be conversion, repentance because we know we live in a radical solidarity with one another as members of the body of Christ. And the way that we strengthen the body of Christ is by our radical conviction and conversion to Christ, by holding back nothing, by surrendering. And when we do that, that's where this, the church regains strength. It's been the whole church. You know, certainly if you want to undermine the church, you undermine the priesthood and the sacramental life. But it's really been the church as a whole that has been, you know, secularized. That there's been, you know, this minimalism has come in relativism, and all of it has led us to lose sight of the mystery. You know, at one point, I think after the council, it wasn't enough for priests to be priests. You know, suddenly they had to become all these other things within the life of the church. And with that came a de-emphasizing of what they alone could do by virtue of their ordination, which was to celebrate the sacraments and preach. And they were to be men of prayer immersed in this mystery. But suddenly in the eyes of the world, that wasn't good enough. And, you know, the MDiv is even sort of like a, a mimicking of the MD, you know, kind of thing. There has to be a kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, person has credentials, you know, there to prove that, you know, they're experts in religion. And that's what we were talking about at the beginning. No, there are no experts in infinite love. There are only humble souls, and the more humble they become, the more they understand. And so what is the criteria in which men are formed to be priests? And the, you know, I mentioned uh, Sarah saying that we have to go to silence. We have to start with listening in order that God can guide us out of this darkness. It's not going to be our figuring it out. Oh, if we come up with this great plan, we can revitalize our diocese or we can have these great programs. You know, we can lift up people in our faith. I think in his mind, that's all nonsense. The restoration of the church, the renewal of the church comes from one place. The same way that unity in the church comes from one place comes from God, who's the source of that unity. We're not going to argue our way into it or talk our way into it or dialogue our way into it in the same way that we're not going to bring about a renewal of the church through talking about it. It's going to be on our knees in prayer. It's going to be through repentance, conversion of life, living the gospel as fully as we can within our homes and within our communities. We don't have to go anywhere even to do it. It's just saying right in your day-to-day life, live it, live it fully. That's where we'll see radical change take place. That was a long one. <laughs> Eight thirty-two, but I guess that still is a little long. Uh, so, what we say together? We'll stand and say the prayer to Saint Philip, and then the beautiful hymn, "Jesus, my Lord, my God, and my All." In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. 
now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things. Look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, roll thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires. Within thee, for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 One final word. that I, I don't want people to walk away from this and with a kind of fear in the heart. I think it can be overwhelming when we hear this. It can come over us like a flood. But we want to remember how small Christ makes himself for us. A vulnerable, tiny little host. There is no desire that we would have fear or anxiety or be threatened in any way. He makes himself completely non-threatening in order that we might receive him only with hope and with joy and freedom. And so, you know, we look at the, the beauty of this mystery and the wonder of it, but not in a way that I would have anybody be afraid of. You know, that he's made himself for us He's made himself this way for us for a reason, that we would not fear approaching him. And so I, I, wouldn't, you know, I would want people to walk away with that, that thought.